Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11. And we want everybody to follow along as we look at the beginning of Hebrews 11. So the guys have Bibles. They're making their way down the aisle. If you need one, get their attention. They will give you a Bible so that you can follow as we look at Hebrews 11 in our continuing series in this book. And we are closing in on the last three chapters of this marvelous section of God's Word. Hebrews 11 today. Why would a middle-aged woman stay in a difficult marriage? Or why would a missionary continue to serve God in a remote place when there's no apparent fruit for that labor? Why would an employee be patient with his adversaries at work, refusing to take matters into his own hands in order to get even? Why would a man refuse to indulge in forbidden pleasure, tempted though he be? Why would one do the right thing when the wrong thing would apparently get him or her ahead, especially when no one's going to know? I just remind you that it's tax season. Why would a young lady say no to the advances of her boyfriend, though her hormones scream that she should give in? Why would that young man refuse to violate her, though his hormones tell him he should? Why would anyone be joyful in the midst of inescapable pain? and difficult. The answer to all of these is because of what these people believe. They will only do the unconventional thing, refuse to follow the well-worn path that everyone else takes in the same situation. They will only do that if what they believe is more important to them than what they see and what they feel. They will only do it if what they believe informs what they see and how they feel. You stay in the marriage because contrary to the culture and contrary perhaps to your own feelings, you believe that God is the most important person in your relationship. You believe that He can change things. And if He doesn't change things, you believe that He can and He will change you. You serve, even lonely and seemingly forgotten, because you believe. You believe Jesus is alive, and Jesus sees your labor, and you stand on the promise of God that your labor for the Lord, because you serve a risen Savior, is not in vain. You trust God to handle your adversaries, because you believe the word of your God who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And a man refuses to indulge in forbidden pleasure because he believes. He believes what God has said. That the pleasures of sin are for a short time. We will see that a little bit later in Hebrews 11. That they are for a short time, but the pleasures that are found in God are forever. You do the right thing when no one is looking 
Because you believe in a God who sees at all times. And you believe that pleasing Him is the most important thing you can do. You say no to sex outside of marriage because you believe that God created you and God created it and He knows what is best for you. You're joyful in the midst of pain and difficulty. Again, because you believe. What do you believe? You believe God is at work in this for your good and for His glory, though you cannot see the end of the road on which a sovereign God has taken you. You do and decide and pursue all of this because you believe. Because you have faith. You all remember that faith and belief are synonyms in the New Testament. You believe these things and many, many more. And if you really, really believe them, they have effects on how you behave. On what you do and what you refuse to do. On your attitudes, upon your, on your words. But conversely, if you lose faith, if you fail to believe, You will find yourself doing what you know you ought not. Saying what you should not. Directing your feelings to people and in ways that God says you cannot. You'll find yourself thinking in patterns that God says you must not. If you lose faith, if you lose a grasp of the truths that you claim to believe, then you have lost, friends, the foundation for life. If you lose faith, you've lost everything. This issue of faith or belief is so important that one of the synonyms used in your Bible for a Christian is simply he or she is a believer. Over three dozen times in your New Testament, Christians are referred to as either believers or the faithful or those who believe. And another 34 times, what we believe is called the faith. And so I ask you at the outset of looking at this marvelous chapter, Hebrews 11, that is all about belief. It's all about faith. I ask you, are you a believer? And if we are really believers, it'll affect how we behave. It'll affect how we live. And so don't answer so quickly, because make no mistake, in the moment that I sin, in that moment I fail to believe. And so are you a believer? It is to affect your life, and so we're going to, before we look at Hebrews 11, we're going to pray that we'll come to understand what it means to believe, to have faith, so that we can put what we believe into practice in our lives, Let's take this time to ask God to forgive us in the assured moments of unbelief that each of us have experienced even this past week as we have sinned. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at this marvelous chapter in your book, Faith's Hall of Fame. I pray that we will be instructed both today and in the weeks to come 
by how you define what belief, what faith is, and how, as you show us examples, sterling examples of those who acted upon what they claimed to believe. Lord, I pray that you will forgive me. I ask you to forgive me. And I pray that there are many here who are asking you to forgive them for our faithlessness. Maybe even this morning, in the way we chose to use the ability to speak that you have given to each of us, perhaps we have used our words in faithless ways, in ways that you have told us we should not. We ask you to forgive us. Perhaps we've come to this place complacent when it is the most marvelous privilege that we can have this side of heaven to gather together with God's people to open the bread of life in your word and to be instructed therein. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Help us, Lord, to come to this marvelous passage with minds that are determined to learn, with hearts that are open to be changed. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This chapter is called the Faith Chapter. It is known by many of you as Faith's Hall of Fame, as you heard me pray. And the author of Hebrews embarks on this long chapter of 40 verses, looking at this issue entirely of faith and examples of sterling belief, sterling faith, because faith is absolutely central to life. What we believe as Christians is called, as I've said, the faith. This chapter connects with the one that we just concluded last week at the end of chapter 10. You may recall that there the author quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, a book in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, where Habakkuk says famously, the just, the righteous ones will live by faith. And so now the question is precisely what is this faith by which my righteous ones, those who belong to me, those who claim me, will live. And now beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11, we're given a definition of what faith is, and then we will see these examples. This is a vital commentary, is this chapter, on the faith of ancient believers to instruct us in our present day. In verses 4 through verse 22, the author concentrates on the book of Genesis, and then verses 23 through 29 on the book of Exodus. And then in verses 30 through 38 on the remainder of the Old Testament. To show beyond any shadow of a doubt that belief or faith has been the central issue from the beginning to the present time. For those who would read this letter when it was first written and for us nearly 2,000 years later. We have an outline for you that's inserted in your program and in it. I say that this passage teaches us that believers live as those who are certain. Take a look, if you would, at the passage, Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And that's why I say that faith or believers live, those who have faith live as those who are certain. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Now this word that's translated in verse 1 as sure is sometimes translated substance. If you have a King James Version, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. 
So you have on the one hand being sure or being assured. On the other hand, you have the notion of of substance. What's the difference and why is there this uh, disparity in the translation? It's because the same word that's translated sure in the NIV, substance in the King James, is used in the very book of Hebrews two different ways. Sometimes it's used of the assurance, the confidence, the assurance that an individual has of what God has promised. Other times it is used of the reality of the thing itself, the substance. And so, for instance, in chapter 1 and verse 3, Jesus is said to be the exact representation. That's the word translated here, substance. He's the substance of God's very being. The reality of God is in Jesus. And so sometimes it's used objectively of the reality of the thing that is promised, sometimes it is used subjectively of our assurance, our certainty, because of what has been promised. The truth of the matter is, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, I believe that the author intends us to understand both sides of this. That our belief, our faith, is based upon something that God has promised outside of ourselves that gives us an absolute confidence, an absolute certainty, an absolute assurance that these things will occur as God has promised. But the faith itself takes hold of those promises such that the faith itself becomes substantive as evidence of the realities that have been promised. We'll see when we look at chapter 3, or excuse me, verse 3 in just a bit, how faith becomes the very evidence of the realities of the things promised. And so I say that this passage in verse 1 is teaching us first that believers live as those who are certain. And as we live as those who are certain, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in how we see ourselves vis-a-vis the world as it relates to the world and the culture and its value system. Take a look at verse 7 for a moment with me in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What it's saying is that Noah, because he believed, was willing to go against the grain of what the world was saying. He was willing to take the ridicule that the world would heap upon him because he believed, he was assured, he was certain of what God had said. It is going to rain, though he had never seen such a thing. And then you look at verse 38. Verse 38 says of those in faith's hall of fame, this chapter, the world was not worthy of them. My friend, if you think for a moment that you can live as a believer, a faithful one, and still be in concert with the world, then it is completely contrary to what God teaches about those who have been faithful. This faith, these things, these promises about which we are certain has such an effect on us that... It is a faith that pits us against, very often, the culture. Further, it's a belief 
in things that we do not see, but nonetheless are absolutely real to us. It's a belief in the invisible as even more real than the visible. Notice verse 10 of chapter 11. Abraham was looking for, forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He hadn't seen it, but it was absolutely real to him. Verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. But they still believed them, though they did not receive them. And then in verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. In faith, believing what God is going to do in the future, even though we don't see it. Being certain of the promises that God has given us. Sometimes has the ability to change radically the verdict of the present day. Things look one way today. But God has promised they will be different in the future. And it radically alters the verdict that you see now. One commentator said, you know, the emperor, the Roman emperor Nero, condemned Paul to death. It looked like Nero had won at that point. Today, 2,000 years later, people named their sons Paul and they named their dogs Nero. Believers live as those who are certain, and certain of what in particular? Notice verse 1 again. It is being sure of what we hope for. It is being certain of what is future, I say in the outline, of what we hope for. And I've told you in the past that in the Bible, when it uses this word hope, it is not the way we often use it as a wish. I hope this happens. I hope I get a particular gift at Christmas time. I hope my husband remembers Valentine's Day, for instance. But rather in the Bible, hope is a confident expectation that is based upon the absolutely sure promises of a faithful God. Confident expectation. And that is why believers live as those who are certain of what is future. We are sure of what we hope for. And what is it that we hope for? Well, the Bible tells us a number of things for which we hope. Notice on the screen what Titus tells us in Titus chapter 3. Excuse me, Titus chapter 2. We wait for the blessed hope, which is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are certain that Jesus is going to return. We have a confident expectation that the Lord who came and walked the earth and died and rose again is alive and will return someday in God's perfect timing. We have hope, a confident expectation of our own resurrection. First Peter tells us this, in His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living, confident expectation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because Jesus has been raised. It's a down payment on the absolute assurance that I will one day be raised, and you will one day be raised. Our confident expectation for the future extends to our own glorification. John said this in 1 John chapter 3, We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, 
for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this confident expectation in him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. And we look into the future absolutely certain, believing God's promises that we will one day reign with him. You come to the last chapter of your Bible, Revelation 22. And the Bible says, in the new Jerusalem there will be no more night. There will not, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And so friends, I ask you, are you a believer? Are you absolutely assured? Are you absolutely certain? Are you absolutely confident of what God has promised first about the future? The things that we hope for, the things in which we place our confident expectation. And then secondly, the last part of verse 1 says, we are absolutely certain of not only what is future, but of what is real. Notice verse 1 again. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Believers are those who are certain of what is real. And what is real, friends, is more than meets the eye. It's more than you can see. The minute you say, I believe in God, you believe in more than meets the eye. Right? No one has seen God at any time, the Bible tells us. And yet we believe. We believe as sure as we are here that this God exists and the things that He has said are true and faithful and will come to pass. Belief in God at the very beginning of your faith requires a belief in a reality beyond what meets the eye and can be apprehended by the, sen the senses. And so we believe in a spiritual realm. We believe that there are angels and that there are demons who do warfare against your soul. Now let me just say, we believe in those things. But we're not afraid of those things, and we're not crazy about those things. I don't see an angel at my door every somebody, time somebody knocks at an opportune time. God sent an angel. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. It doesn't matter, I got the stuff I needed. I'm not looking for a demon behind every bush. You have so many people who rightly believe in the spiritual realm, but they also believe they can determine what the spiritual realm is doing. God tells us of the reality of the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare. He also tells us how to engage that warfare. We do not need to see an angel at our door or calling us on the phone or demons behind every bush to acknowledge, as we do, that there is a realm that is real beyond what we can see, the spiritual realm. We believe are certain of a reality beyond what we can see, which includes that humanity is given an eternal spirit, that man is given a soul beyond the physical, the material, that will reside with God forever or in the eternal penitentiary of the damned forever that the Bible calls hell. It's a reality we can't see, but we believe. And failure to believe in that reality causes all sorts of weird things to happen amongst people. As people begin to devalue 
those who are made in the image of God and who alone are given this reality of a spirit and a soul that will live somewhere forever. And we see that in our own culture. And so believers live as those who are certain, certain of what is future, certain of what is absolutely real. But I say in your outline as well, believers live as those who are certain. Now, if you take a look at your outline, you'll see that points one and two are worded the same way. Believers live as those who are certain. That's not a typo. It's actually emphasized differently in the second point. Notice the word live is in italics. We live as those who are certain about the future and about what is real, but we actually live as those who are certain. That is, it makes a difference in the way we live in our day-to-day lives that we believe these things about what God has promised and about what reality is. And so I've already told you that believer is a synonym for Christian in the Bible. But it goes further. The word disciple in your Bible is another word for believer. The word disciple is used consistently in the book of Acts, which tells us about the beginning of the church and those who first came to Jesus. That word disciple is used consistently there as a synonym for a believer. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower, a learner of Jesus. And so, a Christian is one who believes... And one who believes is one who follows, one who obeys, who is a disciple. And so I am certain of the future, and I am certain of reality. But it's to make a difference in how I live as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus. And so verse 2 tells us this. This is what the ancients were commended for. When it refers to the ancients, it's referring to those that are going to be outlined in the rest of the chapter of Hebrews 11. Those in the first part of your Bible that go back hundreds of years before this book was written 2,000 years ago. The ancients were commended for acting upon what they said that they believed. Because we cannot separate belief from the profound difference that genuine faith makes. That's what this entire book of Hebrews has been about. It's been about giving us the truth of God's Word, the promises of God, in hopes that we will believe and act on that belief. In hopes that we will become the kind of people that we saw last week. Do you all remember last week? Verse 34 of the previous chapter, chapter 10. People who were able to, you see it there? Joyfully accept the confiscation of your property. Um, I thought being a believer meant I got fire insurance. Which means I'm going to heaven and not going to hell. And now you, preacher type, are telling me that it has such a profound effect that it means I'm even willing to have a radically different value systems such that the things of earth no longer matter to me. And that's exactly what God says. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
as we saw last week. And that's what the book of Hebrews has been about, to produce people who live as those who are certain of what they claim to believe. We see this throughout the Word of God. People who not only said they believed, but who acted upon what they believed. You all remember what we call the three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel? They were told by a powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Babylon, the world power at the time. And these young men are told, you cannot bow down and pray to your God. You bow down and you pray to me. These young men believed in Yahweh. They believed in the God of Israel, the true and living God. They said they had that faith. They said they believed that. They said that they were certain that He was their God and He could do anything. He made the world. They said that. Now's the moment of truth. Will you live that? Do you remember what they said? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand. Okay. On the one hand, we still believe this. Despite your power, your power is delegated. And there is a power higher than yours. And further, they go on. But even if he does not choose to rescue us, in this immediate circumstance. We want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Do you believe, friend? Do you believe such that it affects the way you behave? You live that way. We come to church, we all believe. We come to church, we all know what to say, we all know the lingo. But then there's Monday. There's work. There's the world. There's, there's the persecution, even if verbal, because you don't go along to get along. And then what do you do? Believers live as those who are absolutely certain. And that certainty, lastly, in verse 3, rests on an absolutely reasonable foundation. Notice verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And you see what the author of Hebrews is doing. Faith is everything. Belief is everything. But it's a belief, if it's genuine, it's a belief that actually is translated into action. We live this way. It has a, makes a difference in the way we live. And now in verse 3, he's reminding you that this is always the way it has been, going all the way back to the very beginning of your Bible, the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you were not there to see it. And yet you believe it. You are called by God in the very first verse of the Word of God to believe it. No proof is offered that he did this. In the beginning, God did this. You believe it. And by faith, you believe what you do not see. That a God who you have not seen did an act of marvelous power by his powerful word, something you were not there to see. 
And it now has profound difference in your life in the here and now. By faith we understand that. Now this connects back to verse 1. I'm going to have you turn to another passage in your Bible for our final point to show you how it is that what God created is evidence of what we believe that we have not, we have not seen. But back in verse 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And that word translated certain is the Greek word elenko. And it's the root word of the word that is translated elsewhere in your Bible, conviction or convinced of. And that's why in the King James Version that phrase says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, and then it says the, the evidence. Why evidence? Because evidence is what brings about this conviction. I'm absolutely convinced, based upon evidence that I can see, of something that occurred that I did not see. And that's what verse 3 is telling us. By faith, you believe that God made the worlds. You see the world that He made, and by faith, you see that this is the world that He made. You see His fingerprints upon the world that He made. You see the evidence, and thus you are convinced, you are convicted that this is His world. But you haven't seen Him, and you were not there to see the act of creation. Now, this is spoken of profoundly in another passage in your Bible. And I invite you to turn, if you have your Bible, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who, now notice this phrase, suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, we're going to see why people who are unbelievers, people who do not believe, have to suppress this truth. The reason they have to hold it down or suppress it is because of what follows in verse 19. Because what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen. How have they been clearly seen? They have been understood from what has been made. And so God's fingerprints are all over what has been made. But it requires the eyes of faith to see those fingerprints. To see them as actually the work of God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that men in their natural state do not have those lenses. They come into the world without the eyes of belief. And so they have to hold down and they purposely and are morally culpable for suppressing, holding down the truth that God has made plain to them. And what's the result of that? The end of verse 21, or excuse me, the end of verse 20. They are without excuse. You have heard me tell you from time to time that that phrase that's translated without excuse is the negative form of a Greek word that some of you may be familiar with. It's the Greek word apologia. 
We have a, a subject at Bible college and seminary. We even had a class uh, last semester in our community institute called apologetics. It comes from this word, apologia, and it means a defense. And here is the, neg- the negative form of apologia, no defense. Those who refuse to believe the evidence that God has given that He is the Creator, that He made the world out of nothing by His powerful Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those who refuse to believe that and suppress that truth and hold it down are without a defense before God. Indefensible. Believers' certainty rests on a reasonable Foundation, And that reasonable foundation is the evidence that God has given with His fingerprints all over it. That He has made this world. Its design, its intricacy, all show us the work of a marvelous designer. And so how does it change then? For a person to become one who is without a defense, without excuse, to become one who through the eyes of faith, though I have not seen, I believe, and I see what formerly I did not acknowledge. How does that happen? The Bible calls that being born again. He gives you new eyes to see. He, as it were, turns the light on so that what you formerly looked at, you now see through different lenses. We have a song that my family and I sing. In fact, our ensemble is practicing it for Easter. It has a lyric in it. It says this, The Spirit of God clothes faith with certainty. The Spirit of God is the one who gives absolute certainty to what we believe. That's why we are called then believers, the faithful. That is why Augustine was correct when he said, I do not understand in order to believe. I must believe in order to understand. When I have the eyes of faith that the Spirit of God gives to those who come to Jesus, now I see clearly what formerly was distorted. It is not for lack of evidence. It is for lack of willingness and ability to see the evidence. And so our faith, friends, rests on an absolutely reasonable foundation, but it requires that the light be turned on, the lenses be placed on the eyes so that we now see the fingerprints of the God who made this marvelous world. It is not for lack of evidence. It's on an absolutely reasonable foundation. And so one has said this, faith is absolutely certain that what it believes is true and what it expects will come to be. My question to you then is, do you live that way? In the circumstances that you are in, as varied as they are in a group this size, do you believe the promises that the God who made the world by His powerful Word and has given evidence of His creative power and activity, do you believe in your circumstances? Or do you show faithlessness by sinning in those circumstances? Believer, friend, I ask you to recommit yourself to the God in whom we are called to believe, in whose promises we are to be absolutely certain and sure of. And if you've never come to faith, if you've never come to the faith, the Spirit of God may be moving on your heart and can turn the light on for your eyes 
to see what previously you've refused to acknowledge. How does that happen? Jesus is the one who made it possible for you to see with the eyes of faith what you have refused to see in the past. Jesus, God come in the flesh, has come to die for you on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin as a sinner and my sin as a sinner. And so you realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus died for your sin. And you say, Lord, I want to embrace what formerly I've rejected. I repent of my sin. I want to follow you, go your way, and no longer my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. And as we do, I invite you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And in that blessed moment, He will turn the light on so that you will see what is now distorted in His world. Let's bow before the Lord. Our Father, we thank You again for this blessed passage of Scripture that tells us what it means to be part of the faith, the faithful, those who are genuine believers. I thank You, Lord, for the difference that it has made in my life and the lives of so many here that Jesus Christ has invaded my life and opened my eyes to see what is true and beautiful and real. But Lord, I have moments of faithlessness when I sin. And Lord, I acknowledge that when I sin, I do not believe. And so, Lord, I ask you to forgive me, and I pray that my brothers and sisters are sincere in seeking your face, confessing before you, and renewing their commitment to be people of belief and faith. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that right now the Spirit of God is drawing them to Himself. He is turning the light on so that they now see Jesus in a radically different way as their only hope for salvation. As the God who could condemn us is a God who is reaching out in love to us. They're seeing themselves in a radically different way. That they know that they have these distorted lenses and it's distorted everything that's happening in their lives and the way they see them themselves and their circumstances. And now they're seeing them as in the control of a good God who has reached down to save and rescue and deliver them. We ask you for your glory to draw men and women to yourself. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.